Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. As the pandemic creates chaos in our economic, political, and cultural life, one way to try to make sense of all this is through history, to go back to moments in the past which have some uh, equivalence. Um, one a well-known Wall Street Journal columnist and writer about politics, William Galston, in a, in a column this week, uh, asks the question, is our current moment another 1933, going back to the Great Depression, in America at least? Uh, Bill, is our current moment indeed like 1933? In some respects, yes. In some respects, no. Uh, certainly it, uh, it is creating an economic crisis where to judge by the unemployment numbers, we are heading towards, uh, the numbers at the nadir of the great recession, the great depression rather of that began in, in late 1929. And if you look at the likely reduction in gross domestic product, uh, similarly severe. Uh, It's unlike the Great Depression in that this crisis was produced by a disease and a public and private sector response to that disease. Uh, And so the sorts of mechanisms that Franklin Roosevelt invoked successfully at the depths of the Great, Great Depression are not going to serve us equally well under these circumstances. We have an economic crisis that is driven by a healthcare crisis. uh, And so we're going to have to proceed quite differently. I do believe, though, that what these two episodes have in common is the urgent need for energetic and effective government responses. Uh, which we did see in 1933, but regrettably have yet to see in 2020. You bring up this issue of fear. Uh, FDR's famous speech, of course, suggested that uh, what America has to fear most of all is fear itself. Um, Is that quote as relevant today as it was then? Well, It is in the sense that the restoration of public confidence is essential. But here, the difference between the two situations makes a difference uh, because what it will take to restore public confidence now is very different from what it took to restore public confidence in 1933. In 1933, as FDR said, Uh, the fear was nameless and unreasoning. Uh, I don't think the same can be said today uh, because we can name the enemy. (laughs) 
And the enemy is not fear. The enemy is a disease which has already cost more than 50,000 American lives uh, and is on course to do much worse than that. Uh, and the, the restoration of confidence, therefore, is going to require more than uh, optimism on the part of government officials. It's going to, it's going to require a healthcare response uh, that uh, will not re- eliminate the disease, but will reduce its dimensions to such an extent as to be uh, as we can live with it, which right now we can't. Uh, Bill, some of the guests on on this show have suggested that the crisis in America, at least, exposes the structural defects of the American system, particularly its healthcare system, its economic system, which compounds inequality, and its political system, which seems to generate political leaders without responsibility. In your view, you're a, you're a, you're a senior um, person at the Brookings Institute. You've written many books. You worked in the Clinton administration. You've been around a while. Um, <laughs> That's a very generous and gentle way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, I, I was trying to be polite. Yeah, uh, well done. <laughs> you've, you've, done an, you've done an amazing amount of different things as a writer, thinker, public intellectual, uh, and government official. Um, to what extent is this a peculiarly American crisis? If, 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 it, if it was a Hollywood movie, um, is this the, the dark climax bringing all the bad things together? Well, that's, that's a popular narrative. But if you look at the, res- the responses of governments across Europe, you'll see a very wide spectrum. And we're certainly, the United States is certainly not outside that spectrum. Uh, We're doing better than some European countries and worse than others. Has this been a pitiless x-ray of some distinctively American problems? Yes. Uh, Our society is more equal, more unequal than is the case in most of Europe. Uh, And we have underfunded a number of government agencies and programs. Uh, we have failed to provide for the future. And uh, it, all of those things are now coming back to bite us and I would say to haunt us. Uh, I don't think that the United States has, has proven to be a distinctively inept society, uh, but I do think that uh, that leadership, particularly from Washington, has put us farther behind than we needed to be. The very same institutions functioning in the very same circumstances could have done a lot better than we have done. So I don't, I don't think the problems are exclusively structural. I also think that they have to do with the leadership that we now have. Uh, and evidence of that is that, uh, is that the nation's governors, all 50 of them, have stepped forward in ways that, uh, regrettably, the president of the United States has not. 
Uh, if we had an effective partnership between the states and the national government, and there's no reason why we couldn't, uh, I think we would be much farther along in grappling with this crisis than we are. One of the other debates on this show um, has been whether or not this is a crisis that marks the passing of the baton in the international political system from the United States to China. Um, what's your take on that? Is this crisis, again, something which brings to boil the shift in international power between the United States and China? Well, perhaps, although I, I note with interest that the European Union seems much less friendly towards China than was the case three months ago or six months ago. I also note with interest uh, that African countries are expressing an increasing resentment of the role of the Chinese in their economies and, and societies. Uh, it's also the case that China is under increasing pressure uh, because of allegations that it deliberately withheld information that it had, which, if they had revealed it much earlier, would have allowed other countries around the world to respond much faster and more effectively. So, yes, the Chinese have tried to exploit uh, the opening that this crisis has given them to send planes hither, thither, and yon laden with, uh, with health equipment and Chinese healthcare experts. Uh, but I am not, I am not convinced that this all-out diplomatic of offensive is going to yield the kind of fruit uh, that uh, Xi Jinping and uh, you know a and the rest of the Chinese leadership might have expected as really as recently as a month ago. So, I think that uh, uh, that to your question, a Scottish verdict of not proved must be returned. Uh, mm. And it, it could turn out that way, uh, but I think the evidence right now is decidedly mixed. Uh, the United States certainly has relinquished international leadership during this period. There's no question about that. Whether the Chinese have picked it up is a different question. Uh, and it may be that our loss is not China's gain, at least in the short term. It may be that uh, different countries and indeed different continents around the world uh, may, have, may now have the impression, which I could certainly understand, uh, that they're much more on their own than they were in the days when they could look to the United States as the ultimate backstop. Interesting. So the, the, the baton may be lying on the floor. Some, some, someone's going to pick it up and surprise us. Well, maybe, or we may have, we may have moved, we may be moving towards a much more polycentric global system with different sources of regional power, but no clear global hegemon. Uh, and, uh, we haven't seen what that kind of system looks like uh, for a very long time, but we, might, we may now 
get to see it once again. Bill, your last book your, in 2018 was uh, entitled Anti-Pluralism, the Populist Threat to Liberal Democracy. There's also been an ongoing debate about the impact of the pandemic on populism and the threat to liberal democracy. Indeed. Uh, we know that uh, Orban um, in, in Hungary has used the pandemic to essentially end democracy in Hungary. We have similar threats in the Philippines, Brazil, perhaps in Poland, maybe even in the United States. To what extent do you see anti-pluralism being empowered by the pandemic? Well, it certainly hasn't been helpful. Uh, it is almost a cliche of political science that in times of emergency, uh, power shifts towards the executive branch. And so it is proved in most countries, including most democratic countries. Uh, this is a very bad time for that power shift to be occurring, however, because there are lots of executives, uh, leaders of one sort or another, in putatively democratic countries around the world uh, that have been itching for an opportunity to expand their power. Uh, and they're doing so under the guise of this emergency, but they're not going to be very eager to relinquish it if and when the emergency passes. Uh, and I'm, I'm very worried that this is opening the door for all of the people that you just mentioned, uh, plus Mr. Modi in India, uh, who seems to be seizing the opportunity uh, offered by uh, the COVID-19 pandemic to stir up yet more interreligious strife in India. Uh, so this did not happen at a good time for liberal democracy. Liberal democracy has been on the defensive for the better part of 15 years. Uh, and, uh, uh, and people who represent themselves as Democrats but proudly proclaim themselves to be illiberal, uh, now seem to have the bit between their teeth. Let's go back to 1933 then, since that's how we began this conversation. Um, America, of course, as well as the Western, other Western democracies, face the same challenge of anti-pluralism. Some countries like the United States and uh, Britain uh, defended democracy successfully. Others, of course, like Germany and Italy, didn't. Um, could you imagine a similar scenario here where we do really have the appearance of uh, a new kind of authoritarianism, perhaps even fascism in, the, in, in, in advanced Western democracies like the United States and Britain? Well, you know, I'm now 74 years old and events, including especially 2016, have taught me never to say never. <laughs> uh, having, having said this, I do think there's an important difference between then and now. Namely, that in 1933, you had two very well-developed ideological alternatives to liberal democracy on offer namely fascism and, and communism, and each appealed to both mass publics and intellectuals for very different reasons. 
Uh, I don't think that's the case to the same extent today. Uh, you have you have liberal democracy clearly on on the defensive. Uh, on the other hand, if you ask most people, at least in the West, well, do you want to turn in the Chinese direction? I think the answer to that question is probably no. Uh, people would like Chinese investment, but I don't think they want the Chinese political system. So there's no clearly superior political system on offer. But if we have the repeat of the Great Depression, all bets are off because a sustained economic downturn with mass unemployment, with severe reductions in, in output, with the kinds of social problems uh, that would uh, uh, result from the, the vast reduction in government revenues that would certainly attend that kind of depression scenario. Under those circumstances, uh, different forms of regime types and different kinds of leaders may very well bubble to the surface and desperate people will be willing to entertain desperate measures, including the sorts of alternatives to liberal democracy that really don't seem very credible right now. So it's something I worry about on a daily basis. Uh, I served for nine years on the board of the National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, those nine years, unfortunately, coincided with nine years of democratic decline. Uh, some other members of the board hold me personally responsible for that. Uh, and uh, uh, I am, you know, I am diffusely worried about the future. Uh, but uh, as as I said. I think that 19, 1933 is a suggestive metaphor. Uh, I think it's not quite an analogy, and it's certainly not a prediction of our fate. Bill, you gave away your age, 74, so I, I can't get into trouble for that one. And you've, as you said, you, you were also on the, um, on the board of the National Endowment of Democracy, so you've done many different things. You're a a member, uh, and, and uh, you, you, you may like this, you may not, you're a member, you're a wise man at the Washington, D.C., someone who is comfortable slipping in and out of government, um, uh, of academia, of nonprofit organizations. You're part of the governing class, for better or worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I will point out that I've spent the grand total of two and a half years out of my 74 years actually in government. So well, I, 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 no, I buy that, but uh, I mean that in a complimentary sense. You're, yeah. you're someone comfortable both in and out of government, advising governments, commenting on governments, writing books, uh, and all the rest of it, giving interviews like this. Um, and, and I think you're part of, again, for better or worse, an American elite. You said, as you, as you said earlier, you're 74 years old. You've seen a series of generations following you as that establishment, as that elite, uh, as the next generation of wise men and indeed wise women. Are you confident that the new generation of Americans um, have the 
cultural capital, the emotional confidence and maturity to protect American democracy? Well, it's always tempted, tempting to believe that one is a member of a uniquely qualified generation. Uh, that kind of myopia has a very long history. As a matter of fact, you can find it uh, <laughs> in Egyptian inscriptions <laughs> without looking too hard. So uh, uh, I will say this, that centuries of, skeptic, of skeptics have gone broke betting against the United States. Uh, and we now may be, for the first time in our history, in irreversible decline. Uh, we can't say that with any confidence now, and it would be very foolish to think and act in a way that made that prediction more likely to be the case. Uh, I know a lot of people younger than I am who served with distinction uh, in administrations of both political parties in this century. Uh, unfortunately, uh, many of the best people in both political parties are outside the current government, uh, either because the current government wouldn't accept them or because they wouldn't accept the current government or some combination of the two. But uh, I have no reason to believe that what we're now seeing at the national level in the United States is anything like the best this country can do. We can do much better. And I hope that the political winds shift in such a way that people of genuine talent and commitment with a moral bottom uh, would once again be in positions of leadership. And I don't just mean elective office, I mean manning the major institutions of national government. Uh, and I would not be surprised to see that happen. One way perhaps we can do better is to make ourselves wiser by reading some good books. Finally, Bill, any, any suggestions of a book or two that people might read while they're stuck inside during the pandemic? You're, in your 74 years, I'm sure you've, you've, you've not only written a number of books, but you've read many. What have been the most influential books that you've read? Well, I'm going to make an utterly conventional and predictable recommendation uh, because I think that Albert Camus quite literally wrote the book on this. <laughs> It's called The Plague, uh, and it has in lapidary form just about all of the themes that we're now discussing uh, and how, how disease can be uh, a metaphor for a political and even a moral condition. It's so, a book about fascism, of course. It's a warning against fascism. Well, no question about, no question about that. Uh, but it is also it, it is also a a description on a more literal level of what it means to be in the middle of a plague and to try to behave as a responsible human being in those circumstances. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. 
Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.